While we were marching through Georgia, everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The Alaman left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right to left walk on your heel and toe. Promenade that pretty gal to Georgia. Here's a good question. Why can you smoke pot in Colorado but not in Georgia? Congress passed the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act back in 1970, which made marijuana and other drugs illegal in the United States. There isn't a list of states to which this law applies, and a list where it doesn't. How does one state, or in this case several states, choose to ignore a federal law? What would James Madison think if he saw people lined up to vote whether their particular state should ignore or nullify a federal law? And that's our key word here, nullification. In 1828, the federal government passed a tariff that was very unpopular in the South. Manufacturers in the North were seeing their business suffer due to cheap imports from England. Europe had recovered from the War of 1812 and Napoleon, and it was building its economy back by exporting fairly cheap manufactured goods. To protect their industry, a tariff, and a steep one, was proposed with a 38% tax on some finished goods and a killer 45% tax on the importation of raw materials. Theoretically, this would make European goods so expensive that people would choose to buy American, and the various mills and factory of New England would be saved. Actually, that wasn't the original intention of the bill. This particular bill, which eventually caused a constitutional crisis which would develop and help bring about a civil war, was never intended to pass in the first place. It was political grandstanding. This is Moving Through Georgia, and today's episode is Two Missionaries to the Cherokee. John Quincy Adams of Massachusetts was president, and his vice president, John C. Calhoun of South Carolina, had a problem. He knew that Congress was considering protective tariffs in favor of northern manufacturing, but Southerners believed that those tariffs wouldn't protect their industries. In fact, the only effect on the South would be to make things more expensive. For the general good and the prosperity of the country as a whole, a tariff was probably necessary, but the impact on the South had to be taken into consideration. Calhoun felt that the political fallout from the Adams administration even just proposing a high tariff that would harm the southern states would boost a southerner, specifically Andrew Jackson, into the White House. Calhoun and Martin Van Buren went to work and created a bill that they referred to as the Tariff of Abominations. That's the 38 and 45% tariffs. Now, they felt there was no way this thing was going to pass, and that the southern states would be so angry at its very introduction that a southern candidate for president would become a hero by fighting it and negotiating a lower tariff. And it passed. The Middle Atlantic states and the Western states voted for the tariff, and even though he knew it would be a bad move politically, Adams signed it into law. Despite the miscalculation in the vote, the rest of the plan worked, kind of. Adams was trounced in the election, and Andrew Jackson became president. 
Problem is, Jackson did nothing about the tariff. Calhoun, because elections were different back then, was also Jackson's... Calhoun, because elections were run a little differently back then, was also Jackson's vice president, so the two went back and forth about the issue. Eventually, Calhoun would resign his job to run for Senate, where he felt he could fight the tariff better. That's the tariff he put together. And by this time, Calhoun had begun openly discussing the concept of nullification. The right of a state to not enforce a law that they feel is against their interest. Calhoun's state of South Carolina passed the Ordinance of Nullification, which declared the tariff void within their state. Jackson responded with a proclamation that nullification was against both the letter and the spirit of the Constitution. It was a standoff, and it raises an interesting question. Do all states need to follow a law when that state doesn't benefit everyone? Sounds like the sort of question that could eventually lead to secession, or possibly even a war. Both sides eventually came to a rational solution that saved face for all. Jackson's administration passed a law drawing the tariff down gradually to pre-1828 levels, while simultaneously passing a law authorizing the executive branch to use force to uphold federal laws. South Carolina voted to nullify that force bill, but rescinded its nullification vote for the tariff. Basically, the slate was wiped clean and everyone agreed to disagree. The issue was settled, but not really. And that was quite an introduction, but nullification was an important issue in the run-up to the Civil War. The simple fact was that any law could have a radically different effect in either the North or the South, and a state with the power to nullify federal law is a government unto itself. So, do we have a collection of individual states with their own self-determination? Or is the United States a single nation under Washington, D.C.? And most importantly, what does this have to do with Northeast Georgia? It's the Cherokee. Gold was discovered in Northeast Georgia within the borders of the Cherokee Nation. In 1827, the Cherokee had established a constitution and declared themselves to be an independent nation of indigenous people, making them as entitled to their lands as any other property owners. The Georgia legislature refused to accept this decision and began annexing the Cherokee's land without their consent. In 1830, the Indian Removal Act was passed, allowing President Jackson to offer land west of the Mississippi in exchange for Native American land within the borders of existing states. Some tribes took the deal, but most didn't. The Cherokee actually took the matter to court, and in Cherokee Nation versus Georgia, the Supreme Court ruled that the Constitution's framers never intended Native Americans to be separate sovereign nations. Instead, they were basically wards of the United States government. The Cherokee had no standing to strike down or nullify the laws of the United States, or even that of an individual state. Okay, remember the title of this episode? Two missionaries to the Cherokee, and we're now ready for them to step up. 
Samuel Worcester was the seventh in a line of congregational ministers starting in England and leading to his birth in Vermont. He trained as a missionary and was assigned to the Cherokee people of Georgia, charged to make the whole tribe English in their language, civilized in their habits, and Christian in their religion. He and his family moved to New Dakota, the capital of the Cherokee Nation, and he began working with a Cherokee with the English name of Elias Boudinot. Worcester had been a printer back in Vermont, and in Georgia he began to publish a newspaper for the Cherokee people using Sequoia's writing system. In 1830, Georgia passed a law making it illegal for white men to live within the Cherokee Nation without a license. Worcester and another missionary named Eliezer Butler refused to leave and refused to get a license. They believed that Georgia issuing the license took a valuable piece of the Cherokee's sovereignty away. They were arrested. Then Worcester was released on a technicality. He traveled back and forth to visit his family and daughter at New Dakota. Remember, the law only required white men to be licensed and during one of those visits, he was arrested again. Eventually, Worcester, Butler, and another missionary were tried and convicted to four years at hard labor in Milledgeville. Their case, backed by some Cherokee lawyers, went to the Supreme Court, and the Georgia law was ruled unconstitutional. It sounds like this contradicts the previous Supreme Court ruling, but for those of you who haven't gotten bored and turned the episode off yet, this is actually pretty interesting. John Marshall said that the relationship between Native American nations and the United States was similar to that of Native Americans and the British Crown before the Revolution. He ruled that the federal government, like the British government, had the right to negotiate with Native Americans, but individual states did not have this authority. This sounds like a contradiction of the previous ruling, but he's basically telling Georgia that the federal government will deal with the Cherokee, not them. You were here for the start of the episode. How do you think telling another state that it could not nullify federal law went over? Andrew Jackson is quoted as saying, John Marshall has made his decision. Now let him enforce it. The ruling specifically ordered Worcester to be released from prison, but that didn't happen. Worcester's lawyers petitioned Governor Wilson Lumpkin to pardon and free Worcester, but Lumpkin refused, stating that the Supreme Court had overstepped its rights with the decision. This is all happening at about the same time that South Carolina is trying to nullify the federal tariff. So we have two southern states basically saying that they are not going to follow the directives of the federal government. The Supreme Court ruling came down in March. In December, Georgia repealed the licensing law and both prisoners applied for pardons. Lumpkin was somewhat offended that the two did not specifically confess to breaking the state law and he didn't release them until January. Within a few weeks, the two were back in New Dakota publishing their newspaper. In 1835, the Cherokee signed the Treaty of New Dakota, and Worcester went west as well. He continued to translate the Bible into Cherokee, you can see it online if you look it up, and he continued with his newspaper. 
The concept of nullification hadn't disappeared, however, and it became one of the main causes for southern states to claim that the North was acting tyrannically toward them. Interestingly, it also became a reason for southern Confederate states to decry the tyranny of their own central government. Almost from the start, the Jefferson Davis government found itself pressuring individual states to look past their own borders and consider the greater good of the new nation. We've already discussed Joseph Brown, governor of Georgia during the Civil War. Brown's government raised and trained thousands of troops, most of which left Georgia to fight wherever the greater army might travel. At one point, Savannah was threatened by a Union invasion, and Brown immediately demanded that troops originally from Georgia be returned to defend the city. Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis faced a problem. If they gave in to the demand, then any governor could essentially hobble the Confederate army at any time by recalling their troops. The troops weren't sent, and many who had believed that the Confederates were fighting for states' rights over the rights of the central government expressed their outrage. Moving Through Georgia is a history podcast mostly concentrating on Northeast Georgia. If you have any questions, comments, or complaints, we'd love to hear from you at movingthroughgeorgia at gmail.com. Also, if you wanted to leave maybe uh, five stars and maybe a nice review, it will help to get the podcast out to more people. The marijuana issue continues to baffle those who see federal law as superior to state law. Even in Colorado, pot is technically against federal law, and the state law is in direct contravention. People with federal jobs are not allowed to smoke pot, and some green card holders have been deported for working in the marijuana industry. College students could lose their federal aid if they're charged with possession, and an arrest could cost a person the right to buy a gun. The feds and the state have found a solution by generally agreeing not to allow minors access to pot, preventing it from being distributed out of the state, and not allowing it to be grown on federal lands. You also can't use pot on federal property. Not exactly nullification, but sort of a gentleman's agreement allowing Colorado to look the other way where a federal law is concerned. Everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The yellow man left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right left walk on your heel and toe. From an a deputy gal to Georgia. That's all.